The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing. In this show, I cut through the hype and hand-wringing to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. In some ways, today's episode is a classic tale of innovation going hand-in-hand with destruction. Fracking is a technology that prioritizes big-picture progress and short-term economics over protecting the citizens in its path. Just 10 years ago, Congress was moaning about shortages of natural gas, and most people believed the price of oil was heading in only one direction, higher. But at the end of 2018, the news broke that the United States was now the world's largest producer of crude oil, responsible for almost 20% of the world's oil production. That's more than Saudi Arabia and Russia for the first time since the 1970s. In other words, the so-called shale revolution, which is better known as fracking, has changed everything. For decades, the U.S. had this grand goal of energy independence. Now, President Trump's administration talks about something even bigger, energy dominance. The idea is that our oil and gas riches will change the geopolitical game, both by weakening Russia and by disentangling us from the messy Middle East. And yet there are many questions, and even more controversy. Most of that focuses on the environmental cost. The truth is, there isn't anything pretty about fracking. Fracking basically involves injecting tons of sand and millions of gallons of water, and an undisclosed cocktail of chemicals, directly into the ground beneath our feet. This helps force oil and gas through rock that was previously considered too tight to yield it. So what does this mean for our markets, for our environment, for us? Enter Eliza Griswold, my friend and New Yorker journalist whose book, Amity and Prosperity, does a terrific job of illuminating the environmental and human costs of the fracking revolution. Eliza's book just won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction, so it's especially exciting for me to sit down with her today to dig in on the controversy at hand. Even if you think fracking is one of the best things ever to happen to this country, it's worth hearing Eliza's take, because then you'll understand why there are so many people who are so determined to stop it. For my part, I'm deeply curious about the nuances of the economic, global, and political impacts of fracking. 
I wrote my own mini-book, which focused in on the fragile economics of fracking, last year, but mine didn't win a Pulitzer, so please read Eliza's. I see the story of fracking on a grand scale as one of a technological innovation that is literally and figuratively fracturing our country. And yet, it is also sustaining our way of life. Is anyone willing to live without access to energy, which charges our smartphones and powers our electric cars? If there are good guys and bad guys here, is it always clear which one is which? Before the book came out, I met this amazing young woman named Ronnie Coptis, and she is a coal activist who's from Appalachia, and she has the complicated identity that so many people do. You know, she's big on the Second Amendment, and she hunts for her own protein, and she's also fiercely anti-coal. Her husband was a miner, so she's really engaged in what does it mean to move to the next generation of energy development in America, and she's big on how rural America Americans have paid the price for urban Americans' energy appetites. So before the book came out, she and I were driving around, you know, rural Appalachia, and she turned to me and she said, you know, resources aren't the only thing that can be taken from communities like ours. Stories can be taken, too. This is very familiar to me from the war zones I've worked in most of my career. You know, you can show up in a refugee camp and you can spend a day with people and become another level of extraction, like become something else taking from them. And is that because you're bringing your own ideas of what the story should be to them or just because any kind of storytelling is taking their story? So I think it does have something to do with the ideas, but it has more to do with feeding the engine of the media. I have some friends in Greece, and when the Greek economic crisis hit, these Greek journalists were saying that literally journalists had sat with them outside banks and been like, find me a fan family, where the people are missing their teeth, where they, you know, sold their teeth for gold, like casting stories. And whether we're doing that in Iraq or Afghanistan or in Appalachia, it's something that as a journalist, I really want to resist. And I think working in a place over time has forced that to happen. This is a great place for you to introduce Stacey Haney, who's yeah. the character that forms the, the core of your book. And tell us how you found her and what her connection to frac ponds are. Stacey Haney is a single mom and a nurse who lives in Washington County, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour southwest of Pittsburgh. Her family has lived on the same land for more than a century. Her family comes from two towns, and those towns are named Amity and Prosperity, which is the name of the book. Right? I was thinking I, I love it when truth is stranger than fiction. That's one of my favorite things about business. And really, who needs fiction when you have towns named Amity and Prosperity? It's fantastic. Totally. And I met Stacy in the spring of 2011. I went to southwestern Pennsylvania to look at America's crumbling infrastructure because I wanted to look at how our collective poverty, I wanted to look at how our failing systems, our lifeline systems, roads, bridges, uh, the grid, we could go on, are inadequate and how that's costing us, right? The human cost of that. But when I got to Southwestern Pennsylvania pretty quickly, the entire conversation was the boom. It was the oil and gas industry's arrival dating back a few years, really, to the late 2000s, right? And this was 2011. So one day, you know, I was looking at locks and levees. I was looking at river traffic, really everything you can imagine. And I became friends with this remarkable biologist named Rose Riley. And she works for the Army Corps of Engineers. And one day she asked me if I wanted to go with her to hear how this new industry was impacting people, that farmers and other landholders were meeting at the airport 
in Morgantown, West Virginia, because another symbol of what I would call this public poverty is there's no meeting place in Appalachia. Like, where are you going to meet publicly? At the airport. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. She knew nothing about fracking and she was going down to learn about what was going on firsthand from people who had experienced it. And she asked if I wanted to go. And did you know what fracking was at that point? Absolutely not. You know, I mean, I I knew that it was this technological innovation. I knew the buzzwords around fracking, but what it really entailed, how one drilled more than a mile down into the earth and then out for a couple more miles to crack rock and harvest oil and gas from these ancient bubbles, I did not understand that at all. So we started driving south, and she pointed out to me, like, where mountains had flatlined, and I was like, what? How is that happening? And she's, that's mountaintop removal. So she pointed out to me how, for more than a century, these communities in Appalachia had really been harvesting America's energy. So we got to the airport. I was sitting behind Stacy and her 11-year-old daughter, who was still in her pajamas, and was complaining to her mom. She was hungry. Her mom was being like, you should have eaten breakfast, right? <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, I did what I do, which is like I carry these disgusting, you know, all natural health bars, right? No sugar. <laughs> right? Exactly. So I gave her one of these like earnest bars, like offer the girl. And she very wisely was like, no, thank you. And then her mom got up and started to talk and said, you know, she was Stacy Haney. She was a nurse. And she and her kids had benzene and toluene in their bodies. And her 14-year-old son, Harley, was really, really sick. And they knew a little bit about what was going on with them. They'd lost some of the animals on their farm, as had their neighbor. But it was really the beginning. And she was terrified. She was terrified to speak out. This was the first time she spoke publicly because at that point, the company was supplying her drinking water. And she was terrified that if she spoke against them, they would take the water away. And if they took the water, she couldn't afford to stay there because this is an area where, again, we get back to infrastructure, drinking water is actually scarce. Some people have working wells, but what she had grown up doing, Stacy and her family, is doing something called hauling water. They'd grown up traveling 10 miles with a pickup truck to a public water station to fill like a massive water tank called a water buffalo. And they filled basically a cement jug outside their house, a cistern. And that's what they used to bathe and to drink. So she'd grown up poor of water and poor in every way. And this farm that she'd bought had good water. And when fracking came, the loss of that water represented for her really, really a tragedy. And it's a result of this frack pond, right? Yeah. So next to her house, unbeknownst to her, there was at least a six-acre waste pond that was almost as big. They live on eight acres of land. So if you want to imagine it, it was this tar black. It actually, at one point, many points actually, went septic like a wound. It started to rot. It got infected and was off-gassing massive amounts of hydrogen sulfide. So a frack pond super basically is, you know, you pump into the earth, you pump a ton of water as the technology advances, so too does the amount of water and chemicals we use. So at that point, it was like 2 million gallons of water. Now we could look upwards of 8. Millions and millions of gallons of water, sand, and chemicals are pumped down to the earth. What's in that pond is everything that comes back out. So it's all that waste, but it's also ancient bacteria that's been in the earth, obviously, for millions of years, along with radioactive material. So all of that and mass of salt because it 
all of this area was an ancient inland sea, which is why it's rich in fossil fuels. So all of this comes back to the surface. And because of Pennsylvania's geology, it had to be stored on the surface. And where these guys really went wrong is that, yes, these ponds exist in places like Texas, not 800 feet from somebody's house. So the pond itself was leaking. But also it was what was in the air was making them sick. And at one point you had, it wasn't just the hydrogen sulfide that was rotting this pond. You had workers come in in hazmat suits, applying a biocide that's a known carcinogen, acrolein. They are wearing masks and white outfits, right? Where a few hundred feet away, you have Stacy and her neighbor Beth in culottes, right? Watering their goats for the fair. One of the oil and gas workers described the smell as rotting beef jerky, okay? To call it, I've smelled it, to call it sewage doesn't even do, it's like... It's, it's an insult to sewage. It's an insult to sewage. <laughs> it is ungodly, the smell, when this thing is rotting. Okay, so what does that mean for it to be rotting and leaking? So first of all, this is one of the problems with the pond, and this is one of the problems with the technology, because... These guys didn't understand when they lined the pond with two layers of basically black garbage bag, okay? The lining was compromised in all kinds of ways. First of all, wildlife, deer and foxes got into the pond and ripped up the lining. That could be how it leaked. There was a leak detection unit, a way to detect the leaks, but it was put under both of the liners of the pond, which means that by the time the thing is ripped, you already have groundwater being impacted by every element of what's that it, it, what's in that pond. Radioactive material, antifreeze, all kinds of carcinogens. So, and it isn't that nobody knew the pond was leaking. The Department of Environmental Protection, the state agency, the, the regulators issued what are called notices of violation that said very clearly the pond is leaking. And again, internal documents that came out in the course of the lawsuit from the oil and gas company, there's one worker saying, we all know they leak. So Range was using many of these ponds. When I finished the reporting, they still had a couple. And this, these ponds are a serious, serious problem. Done right on the surface, but all wrong underneath. So it's a classic example of checking the boxes. You've lined the pond. You've got the equipment in place that's supposed to be watching this. But in fact, the, the surface box checking does nothing for the underlying reality. Does absolutely nothing. And who's designing that pond? Somebody who's come from landfills because you have such a demand for labor. And in Pennsylvania, you didn't have the know-how. So again, I mean, just time and time again, the failure on every front is, it's human. Like the scale of this is tragedy, human tragedy again and again. And it shows you how dangerous it can be, these failures, even when it's done according to regulation, quote unquote. What drew you from your previous work? Because going from the 10th parallel, fault lines between Islam and Christianity to fracking. You know, I was in rural Nigeria some years ago, northern Nigeria, doing what you do as a journalist. So I was um, riding on an empty oil barrel across a flooded river. <laughs> I've, I've never done that as a journalist. 
it sounds it sounds maybe fun. <laughs> I think I see that in your future. So we were um, we were crossing this river and a bridge had collapsed and it was about two weeks after the bridge in Minneapolis. Right. I-35W had collapsed, killing 13 people. And there was something about that moment where I thought, you know, I've been traveling the world for more than a decade looking at the problems that so much of the world faces, but it's time to look at the problems that America is facing. You know, since the 90s, liberal economists have talked about something called the resource curse. Yes. Right? That Why is it that people who live on land, richest in natural resources, tend to be some of the poorest? Right. Right? And there are a lot of complex causes. A lot of that has to do with corruption. Yeah. But it doesn't just apply. We, we look at that in Nigeria. You know, we cast that away from ourselves. But it applies in America, too, and really nowhere so more than Appalachia. And that's what I wanted to explore. And it's a great irony that, that it does apply in America because we tend to think of it as somebody else's problem. But it's actually right here. It's our problem, too. Exactly. A lot of what happened with fracking is that multinationals, which had a practice of operating abroad came back to America and brought some of those practices, even those contracts that had safeguarded them while passing the cost on to others. And they applied them here in the States. How, given the lessons from elsewhere, what we think of as rules and regulations in the United States, how has that been able to happen here? That is the question. In different places, I think, because of different reasons, the the term I would use is public poverty. You know, what do you mean by that? I mean, in Pennsylvania, basically a failure of the state to have enough resources to even safeguard regulations. I mean, before I began this project, and certainly the they're a husband and wife legal team in the book, you know, and they're no hand-wringing environmentalists. The wife, Kendra Smith, is a corporate defense attorney who mostly handles asbestos and exposure cases for railroads. And she defends them, right? And she defends railroads. And yet for this case, she decided to take on her first plaintiff case and to switch sides. And both she and her husband, the reason they did that is they, like so many of us, had assumed that the regulations were not only in place, but they were also being enforced. And the truth is, neither of those is is accurate. So it was really, you know, one of the things that I think we have to do a better job at is, you know, when we see people talking about fracking, they're usually talking about the the abuses of the corporations themselves. But Kendra, who's a corporate defense attorney, would make the case that that's what corporations do. They protect their own interests, that it's really the failure on behalf of the state that is most shocking in this case. And is it a failure on, on the state's failure? Is it a failure to put in place the right regulations or is it a failure to enforce those that are in place that are in place or is it both? It's absolutely both. So when it comes to how they even think, how they even come up with the adequate with the regulations at all what they're doing is they're usually working with the oil and gas company that's not new that's how regulation is made you know the regulation from the beginning can be compromised because corporate interests are involved in establishing what the regulation should be but in this case there are two other problems one is that these sites are so isolated they're so protected that the regulators are dependent on the companies for knowing what the hell is going on there. You know, they don't they don't have the expertise. They don't have the instruments to test. They need the companies themselves to tell them what's going on. And that is obviously a problem. 
on top of which they just have inadequate numbers of people. They don't have enough bodies to go out there and do the kind of regulation that needs to be done. Is that a microcosm of regulation in America? In other words, what you just said is perhaps exacerbated by the conditions in Appalachia, but on the other hand, it reminds me a lot of what happens in Washington, D.C. with the finance industry, right? Government being dependent on business to write the laws. That's exactly right. And on top of that, I think one other parallel there to draw, you know, a friend of mine who's a banker is always talking about who she's meeting as regulators. One thing that happens here is that, you know, the regulators themselves, these guys who are going out and doing basically monitoring these sites, are not making enough money. And, you know, one in the book, one of the things, one of the people who is harmed in, in the course of the book is standing there at one of these sites and the state regulator asks the gas company representative if there are jobs available, right? So then who's to blame there? You know, when we say in Pennsylvania, State Impact, the NPR uh, station has done some excellent reporting on the revolving door between public interests and private industry. And I think that kind of one day I'm a regulator, the next I'm working for a corporation, that definitely applies in the financial industry. I never forget, I was sitting with Dan Mudd, who was the CEO of Fannie Mae during the financial crisis, and we were in front of a room full of students, and they were complaining about Fannie Mae's behavior and how the regulators hadn't reined it in. And Dan looked around the room and said, okay, raise your hand if you're here going to the University of Chicago planning to be a regulator. Oh, right. <laughs> of course, right. Not a, right. Single, not a single hand went up. Right. And okay. even people who do go into regulation are doing that with a short-term thinking, well, I'm going to get the expertise to flip sides. And are they to be blamed for that? You know, people have families to support. Isn't another part of the complexity with what happens um, with natural resources, though, that there is a very real trade-off here, right? The business itself may exploit people, and yet it provides jobs. And so there is a willingness, perhaps, on the part of governments or an inclination maybe to look the other way because of this very real issue of, of jobs. A thousand percent. And this is especially true in Pennsylvania because of the 2008 crisis, the financial crisis really was massive. It's crazy the ways in which the financial crisis reverberated in all these ways we don't think about, right? Whether giving birth to fracking, which we'll come back to, but yeah. in this way too, making Pennsylvania need a fracking revolution economically. Absolutely. And making, basically making politicians willing to sign off on vast tracts of land for oil and gas interests where they wouldn't have been otherwise because they had to plug a budget shortfall. And I just want to note that that wasn't a Republican governor who did that. That was Ed Rendell. That was a Democrat. So when we get into like the easy polarization on fracking in Pennsylvania, it's much more complex. And that's one reason it's so interesting. Well, it's so complex everywhere. If you think about it, it's President Barack Obama who overturned the ban on exports, right? So it's a Democrat, a Democratic administration, arguably somewhat friendly to environmentalists who overturned a 40-year ban on fracking. One I'm sorry, on oil exports. A thousand percent. I mean, time and again in this this book didn't take place under the Trump administration. This is all on Obama. 
But if you think about other industries that are resource extractive, whether coal or iron mining where I grew up, you had a sort of alliance among the people who live there in the sense of unions and everybody kind of, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but it seems to me that people felt the same way and were unified in the sense of better conditions for the miners. But fracking uniquely has divided communities in a way that I think these other industries haven't. And what's the other side of this divide? Why were some people in Amity and Prosperity extremely supportive of fracking? Yeah, were and are. Were and are supportive of fracking. And it's really important to say that because for some of the people in the community, I'm thinking of a farmer named Ray Day in particular, fracking not only has allowed him to repair the roof on his farm and buy new tractors, it allowed him to put a first floor basement into his mother's farmhouse, which allowed her to die at home. Ray lives on one of the larger farms um, in, in Washington County, and he and his brother signed a very, very lucrative deal pretty early on. And they, too, have a frack pond. Their frack pond leaked. They have all kinds of emphasis, but he doesn't care. He believes very strongly that the company was responsible in how they handled that leak. And did they handle it differently than they handled Stacy's leak? Or is it simply that he was also getting money from the royalty rights he sold, whereas Stacy was getting very little? He, it's so hard to know ultimately. I think there are ideological pieces of why Ray supports fracking that go beyond that paycheck. Yeah. Uh, he's an honorable man, and I don't think he would deliberately put people at harm just for a paycheck. Um, that said, that money has changed the course of his family's life. Ray hates the federal government. And I, being an outsider coming in, you know, well, regulation has to be good. And he just explained to me, he and a, and a pig farmer, um, Jason Clark, who keeps his pigs on Ray's farm, just said, let's tell you how this works. So according to federal regulation, every time I got to give a pig a shot, I have to have a vet come out. That costs $100. But I say my shoulder hurts. I go up the road. I get a prescription for Oxy at the little clinic. That's for free, right? And so you tell me what kind of government has my interest at heart when they regulate my pigs more heavily than they regulate me. Right. And while there isn't a direct link between that and a pro-fracking stance, you actually can see the links. You can see how the progression builds, right? This is another thing that I think rarely gets told in stories about the evils of fracking. So often, the people who live in these communities are painted as naive in some way, and the opposite is true. Ray and Stacy and these families have been signing mineral leases for a century. They have extraordinarily sophisticated understandings of mineral rights, like and and what they make from what and. With coal, they've made nothing. I mean, the coal rights on this land have been sold away for since the Civil War in many cases. So the coal mine can come underneath your land without even any—you get no benefit, and you usually lose your water. It's a kind of industrial coal mining called longwall mining. So Stacy and some of her neighbors actually signed these oil and gas leases to protect themselves from coal mining. Well, that's an irony. Yeah. So— Again, with understanding what's really at stake for these communities and why they're making the decisions they're making, it's to tell a story that begins 10 years ago is simply not good enough. We've right. got to start 100 years ago. One reviewer wrote this about your book. She wrote, um, Stacey Haney's journey is to remember a core truth. Exploiting energy often involves exploiting people. 
as their way around that. I definitely agree with that. You know, I really did start this book from as neutral a position as I could. I just didn't want to be preaching to the choir one more time. Right. Um, That said, after seven years of reporting, I have seen this to be a lived reality for thousands of people. Do I think there is another possible model? I do. Is that because I remain an idealist? Yes. Yes. But I also think that when we are seeing a future of renewables, which, you know, you and I have talked about a lot, like, when would that be viable? Is it now? How do we model that out? I do think there are solutions that are more mutually beneficial. I think we have come to the end of an era. That is where I'm hopeful. I'm excited by these new voices. Um, Even if their ideology isn't always where I am, I'm excited because they're thinking outside of the box. And I do believe there could be solutions outside of the box. And, And I do see my job as a reporter as trying to go find what they are. In oil and gas, it's more complicated than other things because in certain things that we think of as sin areas, you can say, okay, well, I don't smoke, so but, right. but we all use energy, and 80% of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels. So given that dynamic, it is simplistic to say this is the fault of a lack of government regulations or this is the fault of business gone wrong, right, because we're all feeding it. We are all feeding it. Are we willing to change Are we really willing to change in convenience and cost? We need to, as America, let's say, right, as the developed nations, right, we need to be willing to say that we will take a hit. Once again, we are passing the costs of our consumption of energy off to, you know, the woman in Bangladesh who's living on a coast, right, who, you know, climate change is having lived impact right now. This is not news to anyone. But in order to change this model, we're going to have to give up more and we're going to have to be willing to let others develop as they choose, which is both hard. Perhaps to have a broader notion of who bears the cost, it seems in some ways the progression of our society has been to narrow the pool of those who bear the costs and increase the burden on them over time. And maybe that that burden needs to be shared a little more. Without a question, Not even, again, we're not talking about like hand wringing. We're talking about our survival and how practically that's going to happen. So what do you think about all of this in the face of this notion that Pennsylvania is going to reinvent itself as the land of plastics? Every time I hear that, I think of that great line from The Graduate. (laughs) The guy is speaking about what's his future, and it's just one word, plastics. (laughs) That is such, that's a perfect, terrifying metonym. It's a really frightening time if you look at Pennsylvania um, because very, very quietly, Pennsylvania is gearing up to be, yeah, its future is in plastics. You know, we have Carlisle Group coming in um, and buying the largest refinery, as I understand it, in the United States, coastal refinery. Once private equity gets involved. (laughs) Come on, right? Um, Industry and Wall Street together, just the blind engine that that is, driving this business forward, not like, oh, again, not oh, 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 poo-poo business, but against its own interests. Right. That notion of a blind engine is really powerful because one of the big debates in the business world is short-term versus long-term, right? And I think the short-termism in the business world is it's a blind engine, right? That's, that's a perfect way to describe it. 
how is the market already reflecting the reality of climate change? Right. And the answer was, it's not, because it's not even thinking 11 years ahead. It doesn't have that capacity. And that, I wonder, I wonder if that could change. Yeah, there's been discussion for years. Um, as long as I've been covering business, the discussion has been the need to be more long-term in nature, that that would solve a lot of the problems we have, whether it's the financial crisis or whether it's a lack of ability to think about climate change. And each year, this is the pessimist in year, me, but each year we become more short-term oriented instead of more long-term oriented. And I don't know if that's a function of the world moving at a faster pace or if that's Wall Street. It's simplistic to move at a faster pace, right? Short-term is easier because you can measure it in metrics, and the long-term is perhaps more complicated. In, in some ways, I also wonder if that favors kleptocracy because, you know, again, like if you look at Nigeria, right, and you think, well, what drives this resource curse, right? What drives corruption? If I think I'm going to be out of power tomorrow, I will absolutely take everything I can today and put it in a Swiss bank account. And when we look here in America, you know, we look at our own kleptocrat in the in the White House, we see that same pattern. You know, we see take as much as I can get today because who knows what will happen tomorrow. Right. So about a year after your book came out, there was a twist on the story uh, coming out of Pennsylvania. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is just happening now, and it's super exciting. So the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, um, who brought to light the abuses within the Catholic Church, has just launched a criminal investigation looking at environmental crimes committed by the oil and gas industry, particularly, it seems, in relation to Stacy and her family. To think that the this company and the subcontractors may be held responsible for not only what it did, because a lot of what happens in the course of this book isn't just a leaking pond, and it's not just a spill that isn't cleaned up, although those are essential, and, and they impact the people who live next door. It's the cover-up. Uh, to think that there may be some accountability here is really exciting, not just for me, um, but I'd imagine for the people who've lived this, lived this and shouted into the wind for a decade now and watched their animals die and watched their kids get so sick that they think they're going to die, not have the money to move because they can't cover two mortgages, not get the company be able to respond, get the company to say that they're crazy publicly. You know, all of these things have happened. I mean, this has just been, this has been a, a period of outrage for the families in this story in a way I can't really imagine living. living. So to think just even that there may be accountability, I can imagine would be hugely life-changing. It's hard not to be on the side of Stacey Haney and her family. And yet there is this very real tension between jobs now and our energy needs now and the long-term cost of those jobs and those energy needs. How we struggle through that will define the next decade and much more. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes. My executive producers are Allison McLean, no relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell. Mixed by Adam Lieber at Shtick. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12. The tradition of breaking tradition continues 
with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.